Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Les Enlumineurs podcast. I'm Kristen Racanello, the occasional host and producer of this podcast. As it's getting colder here in New York, I've begun to think about all of the things that we associate with winter. Winter is a time for holiday celebrations and family, but also a time of a lot of food and feasts. So for all of you listeners in France and the UK and Canada and elsewhere outside of the United States, this week is probably like any other for you. But here in the United States, this is the beginning of the winter holiday season with three secular holidays all crunched together at the end of the week. There's Thanksgiving, Native American Heritage Day, and also Black Friday with its extension, Cyber Monday. So gathering together to celebrate the holidays usually includes a massive amount of food, a feast. So today on the podcast, we're going to discuss the importance of medieval feasts and their appearance in Books of Hours. So first, what is a feast and why were feasts important in the medieval period? Feasts revolve around food. Simply put, a feast is a large shared meal. There are many types of feasts, but we perhaps most associate feasts with holidays and large social events. A banquet is a type of feast where a number of people consume food together. Banquets are traditionally held to enhance the prestige of a host or to reinforce social bonds among joint contributors, so they're usually associated with secular events. You can think of charitable gatherings, a ceremony, or a celebration like a quinceañera or bat mitzvah. They often involve speeches in honor of the topic or the guest of honor. Feast is a Middle English term from the Old French feste, or festere, the verb, and from Latin festa, meaning joyous. You might think of contemporary words like fete and fiesta, which both mean party and derive from the same Latin word as the English term feast. Banquet originally meant a specific and very different kind of meal from the more general term feast. The banquet often followed a feast, but in a different room or even building, featuring sweet foods of various different kinds. These became fashionable as sugar became much more common in Europe in the early 1500s. Essentially, the banquet was a grand form of the dessert course, and special banqueting houses, often on the roof or in the grounds of large houses in Britain and mainland Europe, were built for these occasions, for these extended dessert courses. So communal feasting is known from as far back as the early Neolithic period. In ancient Greece, symposia were a routine part of living, involving the celebratory drinking of wine, conversation, and performances of poetry and music. 
Notable historical and legendary examples of feasts include Belshazzar's Feast, the Last Supper, the Manchu Han Imperial Feast, and even Mead Halls. Many cultures have developed specific structures for feasts in the European Middle Ages. These included comprehensive ritualized elements which were involved in the traditional three-course menu, which had up to 25 different dishes in each course, and that structure persisted well into the 19th century. The structure was later altered to two courses, with the pre-existing third course changed out for servings of fruit or nuts. Of course, now, the Bible is filled with feast imagery as well, and that was very important to medieval Christians. The first story that jumps to my mind, of course, is the marriage at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine after his mother anxiously noted that there was no wine left at the wedding. None of the synoptic gospels, uh, and by that I mean the writing of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all have similar stories, mention the marriage at Cana. However, that deviating gospel, the Gospel of John, has a tradition based on John's gospel that holds that this, the marriage at Cana, is the first public miracle performed by Jesus. It's considered to have symbolic importance as the first of the seven signs in the Gospel of John by which Jesus' divine status is attested, and around which the Gospel is structured. The story has had considerable importance in the development of Christian pastoral theology. For example, the American Bishop Fulton J. Sheen wrote in the late 1950s that it is very likely that it was one of Mary's relatives who was being married at the marriage at Cana. This would mean that Mary and her relatives would be embarrassed if they appeared inhospitable by running out of wine, giving Mary a reason to ask Jesus to intervene. Sheen further suggests that as Jesus arrived with additional guests, they may have contributed to the wine running short, amplifying Mary's sense of obligation <laughs> to find more wine. The gospel account of Jesus being invited to a marriage, attending, and using his divine power to save the celebrations from disaster are taken as evidence of his approval for marriage and earthly celebrations. It has also been used as an argument against Christian policies against alcohol and the promotion of teetotalism, or personal total abstention from imbibing alcohol. The steward of the feast at Cana tasted the good wine transformed by Jesus and said, quote, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk but you have kept the good wine until now." End quote. The usual interpretation of this statement is that this is a reference to the appearance of Jesus, whom the author of the fourth gospel regards as being himself the good wine. And if we take this as the first public miracle of Jesus, as is suggested in the Gospel of John, this is also a commentary on this moment of divine revelation. It's the moment where we first see Jesus demonstrating his miraculous divine powers. According to Bill Day, the miracle may also be interpreted as an anti-type of Moses' first public miracle of changing the water of the Nile River into blood. 
This would establish a symbolic link between Moses as the first savior of the Jews through their escape from Egypt and Jesus as the spiritual savior of all people. Wine and blood and water imagery permeate the Bible and call up images of feasts not only at the wedding at Cana, but also of the Last Supper. There is a wealth of fascinating scholarship on the marriage at Cana, but I won't sidetrack us now <laughs> with debates of things like the location of biblical Cana or the identity of the bride and groom, or even the marriage celebration's links in comparative mythology to Dionysus, which are all fascinating topics that I'm sure we'll touch on in future episodes. Instead, I'll note that this feast was very popularly depicted in Psalters, the sibling manuscript of the Book of Hours. For example, there's a miniature of the marriage feast at Cana with a kneeling maid holding up a cup of the miraculous wine and six angels playing musical instruments in niches, with three on either side in the Queen Mary's Psalter at the British Library. This Psalter was perhaps produced around 1310 by one main scribe and, quite unusually for a work that is so heavily illuminated, by a single artist who is now known as the Queen Mary Master. We, of course, also find depictions of the Feast at Cana in medieval Bibles. Feasts include common as well as unusual seasonal foods. The class and social status of the people participating in a feast are clearly evident in the food and layout of that feast. Medieval diet wasn't just affected by the seasons, but religion also played an important part in what people ate. Fridays, and in the earlier medieval period, Wednesdays and Saturdays, were obligatory weekly fasting or fish days when it was prohibited to eat meat. There were also annual fasts such as rogation days, advent, and lent, which restricted diets. Medieval cooks invented creative recipes for wealthy diners during fasting periods, including things like mock hard-boiled eggs made of colored almond paste inside of brown shells for Lent when dairy was prohibited. There is an excellent blog by the British Museum called How to Cook a Medieval Feast, 11 Recipes from the Middle Ages, which I highly recommend to anyone prepping for the winter holiday get-togethers. Now, many of us hold some vague image of an extravagant medieval feast in our minds, inspired often by pop cultural depictions and culinary histories. Social etiquette dictated the extensive choice of foods that could be made at a medieval feast. A dramatic shift followed the Crusades, leading to a new and unprecedented interest in expensive, refined objects and elegant manners. This cultural change extended to food preparation and presentation, resulting in fabulous food arrangements with non-local colors and flavorings, especially when preparing a medieval feast for a king or another member of the upper class and nobility. We find feast depictions at the beginning of the Book of Hours. Calendars at the front of Books of Hours told the date by citing the feast that was celebrated on that particular day, and there was a saint's feast day for nearly every single day of the year. 
This is the medieval way of telling time, and it is also known as the calendar of saints. A saint's feast day celebrates the date that a saint died or became a martyr and entered into heaven, essentially, as I've said before, sort of their birthday into heaven. The more important saints are often listed in red or colored ink, the derivation of the expression red letter days, although in some grander books these more important feasts are written in gold, as I've said previously. This calendar system, when combined with major church festivals and movable and immovable feasts, constructs a very human and personalized, often localized way of organizing the year and identifying dates. Therefore, some local feasts helped determine the calendar's use, meaning the place where the manuscript was intended to be used, based around the local saints that could be found inside of the calendar. This is a very important detail that we find extremely helpful in determining where a book of ours was actually made. As we have noted before, each month in this calendar had an associated labor. The labor that was associated with, and thus depicted for January, was the feast following the slaughter and baking of pigs in December. Of course, labor imagery varied regionally and across time, and so for January occasionally we will also find images, for example, of a single peasant sitting and warming themselves by a fire. Although there are countless depictions of the January labor, perhaps the most famous is the full-page illumination of January found in the Très Riche Air du Duc de Berry. Seated in the center of the feast is a figure in a blue robe on the opposite side of the table from the viewer. This is a portrait of the patron, Jean de France, Duc de Berry. The Duke sits centrally at the table while all around New Year's presents are exchanged. Likely, the Limburgs themselves would have been part of this ritual exchange. The man in the midground with a gray floppy cap is probably a self-portrait of Paul Limburg. The table, resplendent in damask and laden with expensive goods, represents the wealth, taste, and power of the duke with objects like the salt cellar, a symbol of trade, and two tiny toy dogs presented prominently on the table. A variety of heraldic motifs relating to the duke can also be found, like the gold fleur-de-lis. In the background, we see tapestries with a scene of knights emerging from a castle ready to go into battle, reminding us of the importance of narrative and speech at feast times. The tiny meats presented on golden plates might be sweet meats, suggesting this is more in line with the secular banquet than with religious feast day celebrations, further emphasizing the power of the Duke through his connection to trade and early colonialism. Some of my favorite examples of the January feast in Books of Hours, currently at Les Lumières, are the January pages found in the Thorette or Tarode, Hours, which is BOH 215, and in the Hours of Julien II Molay, BOH 212. These are simple vignettes of the idea of the feast of January. 
our miniatures are in square frames to the right of the January calendar, which sparkles and features red and gold lettering. Despite their manufacture in different locations, and at different times, the first being made around 1340 and the second around 1500, the scenes are strikingly similar. As with the hours of the Duc de Berry, the most important figure stands on the far side of a table placed centrally within the scene. However, both of these manuscripts at Les Lumières follow a more standard but still luxurious format for the Book of Hours. The labors and zodiac imagery are both understood as signs, intended as a kind of visual shorthand, stimulating further reflection and imagination around that calendar time. Surprisingly, neither of the figures is depicted eating meat. In fact, there is no food at all depicted on these tables. Instead, we see figures drinking, embodying the joyful associations of feast time in January. The figure representing the January labor in the Thoret hours is especially joyful. He holds chalices in two hands, almost juggling them, twisting between them as if he drinks from both cups simultaneously, reminding us of that miracle of the wedding at Cana when Jesus turned water into wine. The link between feasts, festivities, and fermentation is made beautifully clear in this simple glittering miniature. The labor sits above a six-pointed, flaring gold and red sun that we find throughout the manuscript's calendar pages, brightening, literally illuminating, even the dark winter pages of the year, and bringing further joy to the festivities of the Feast of January. So, that's all for today, and to our listeners in the United States, have a wonderful holiday weekend, and to all of our listeners, I hope that you're able to share your own feast day experiences with us very soon. As our podcast continues to expand, it would be really helpful if you could subscribe and rate this podcast in your podcasting app. You can access the podcast through any app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So to subscribe, you just need to click the link with the plus sign at the top of your podcast player. We would love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you know something about feasts or do you have some medieval or medieval inspired recipes to share? Let us know. You can find out more about the manuscript discussed on our website and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Lesson Thanks for listening.